As you might already know, Moody Publishers, our publishers are helping sponsor the podcast, pay some of the bills, and then we're trying to pay the rest. We're trying to do a great job with the podcast, make it a lot more interactive, which is more expensive. So if you're enjoying the podcast and like the series, we've made a really easy way for you to donate. You can either text the word even after to 1-814-256-4142. No space, just one word, even after. And we'll text you a link on how you can support it. Or you can go to danagresh.com slash donate, and you can make a contribution there. And thanks again for listening. Well, I'm Dana Gresh. This is Happily Even After, Episode 3. The question is not, has my husband stumbled in this area? Because... Almost every husband listening has stumbled at some point. The question is, is he caught in a pattern here? In this episode, we're going to tackle some of the trickiest topics related to marriage redemption, like the cycles we get stuck in. And when I came home from that, my wife said, I know where you were, and she had her back's back. How boundaries can help break those patterns. I spend more time talking about Jesus and giving them scriptures and things like that, because that's where the power is. Jesus. There's no more vulnerable, transparent place in that moment in praying with our bride. And why it's so hard to pray together. We'll be driving the scenic route to truth number three. Boundaries can bring holiness and health to your life. Okay, let's go. Hey there. Welcome to the Happily Even After podcast where you'll hear a story of a husband and wife who did not ride off into the sunset but found themselves fighting a man's fierce battle with lust and pornography. Bob and Dan Gresh are raw, real, and honest. Their guests are wise experts in the work of marriage recovery. Some have degrees in therapy or psychology. Others have learned their lessons on the hot pavement of life. They'll help you explore seven beliefs every marriage needs to experience God's redemption. Oh, and by the way, you can live happily even after. Here's Dana Gresh. So, Bob, one of the coolest things about our redemption story is that the man I prayed for became the man I prayed with. Oh, that sounds so easy, (laughs) but it wasn't quite that easy, although I appreciate the sentiment. It was kind of a process. Okay, so how about we get this episode started with you and me sitting in our living room in our red leather chairs, Moose, our 80-pound Labradoodle nosing around. And we're on a Zoom call with one of our favorite marriage coaches, Mike Bivens. Bevo. Yep, Bevo. We're talking about how hard it is for husbands and wives to pray together. Why is it harder for most men to pray with their wives than it is to pray with just about anybody else? Yeah. That's Uh, a thing, right? Yeah. Just just me? Oh my gosh, no. No. (laughs) I love this question. Yeah. All right. So think about it for a second. There's only one for this is for me now. It's from up from all it, but I believe it to be. I believe it to be true. There's no more vulnerable, transparent place in that moment in praying with our bride. There's only one other place that's even more transparent and vulnerable, vulnerable. And that's when you're in your palace. And remember, the palace is our bedroom. That's the most sacred place and space for our marriage and so for us as men we're just 
we're opening ourselves up to this vulnerability and who, whatever that voice that's within us that is judging or uh, projecting, that guy has to die in that moment. And you pray him out of the deal. You go, man, you're not allowed in this moment. I'm with my bride right now, and I'm going to absolutely do what Ephesians says, and I'm going to wash her over with prayer and present her spotless through Jesus. It's crazy vulnerable. And that's why most men shy away from it. And so that to answer your question there, I believe that's that's what it is. It's just such a vulnerable place. But man, it's so empowering when you come out of that. Yeah, coming out of that was not was not really easy for me. I didn't really want to pray with Dana. It was I was still blocking the intimacy, I guess. Why is that? Well, I brought the subject up with someone a whole lot wiser than us, and she said something very convicting to me. Women have a tendency to take responsibility for nothing, and it's damaging, and it hurts their husbands, too, because they treat them in a certain way that's not healthy or holy or good or loving. Ouch. That's licensed Christian therapist Tippi Duncan. She just turned 80, short gray hair, glasses, and although she gets to the point, you are going to love her. One of the most serious problems in marriage that I see is people, especially women and men, think they know the heart and intentions of their spouse and they don't. Mm. Uh, Because every time we have a conversation, especially hard hard ones, it's not just that conversation. It's a conversation we've had 10, 20, 30 years until we really forgive. Until we really forgive. Hmm, that's a tough one in some marriages. In fact, we'll dedicate an entire episode to it next time. Well, we spent some time on Zoom with Tippy because she was our first marriage counselor, and she remains my beloved individual therapist after more than 30 years. She helped Bob and I see how we can tend to conflate years of hurt into one single conversation if we aren't objective. And that's when we jump to conclusions and make assumptions that don't help us move forward towards solutions. We are not really being open. We think, oh, she she does this or she does that or he thinks that. And we don't have a clue, but God does. Mm. So I always tell my clients, for you to believe that you know what your husband is thinking or your wife is a sin because you don't have that knowledge. Only Jesus does. It's interesting because I know I've talked to you about this. That's a struggle that I have. I feel like I know what Dana's thinking and what she'll, how she'll respond and what her motivations are. And that's, uh-huh. I think I'm probably less than 100% on that. Probably, but I've done the same to you. Believe the worst. Could that, I'm wondering, maybe that's the reason why you've had a hard time praying with me? I plead the fifth. <laughs> <laughs> What? I do. I I plead the fifth. Okay, good answer. I'm not, not, yeah. You thought about that for a while. 33 years in, I'm getting a little smarter. Yeah, I guess. Well, let me say this. Women, we do tend to make it hard for our husbands to lead sometimes. And as they heal and walk in integrity, sometimes we just really get stuck in the conversation of the past, uh, the past maybe decade, instead of being here today in the moment, present. Yeah, I think that's... That's true. It's not the only reason it's hard to pray together, though. I think I think there are some other reasons. Like what? Uh, shame, feeling unworthy. Shame is just the big, the big weapon that Satan uses. 
I mean, I, I couldn't fix you, and I was the one who who broke you. Oh. Well, the reality is you couldn't fix me. I had to do my own healing work for myself. And that was a really hard lesson for me to learn. But Pete Kuyper, our intensive marriage counselor from Crossroads, he taught me that. And he did so using a really powerful word picture. Well, if if you were out in the hallway, swinging your elbows back and forth, trying to loosen up your back, and I don't know you're doing that, and I walk around the corner and your elbow smacks me in the nose and breaks my nose, it's sideways and bleeding and hurts like crazy. It's my broken nose. And you might say, you know, I'm responsible for that. I'm accountable for my behavior. I am so sorry. And and so it's my job to fix you. And you grab my nose and start yanking it around and break it worse. I mean, bless your heart. You might be very sincere in wanting to heal me, but you don't have the ability to heal me because the one who hurt me has no ability to fix me. And so if I want my nose to be healed, I need to take it to the doctor, let him reset it, but it's not going to be immediately fixed then either. It's a long process of recovery with a painful nose. Um, And so healing is typically a process that takes place. Um, and so even though you are a hundred percent responsible for breaking my nose, you can't fix me. And that, that is such an important lesson for people to learn because, um, if I'm feeling hurt, I need to take ownership of the hurt because it's my hurt. Mm. So that's a, that's a big concept. I gotta ask you how much of a game changer for for you, was it when I finally figured that lesson out? Well, it was the whole game changing because I couldn't help much. I, I couldn't really help. And so you don't make a lot of progress if one person can't help and the other person is depending on their only source of help being the person who can't help. Right. <laughs> and when you when you feel blamed, you feel guilty because you did do it. It's your fault. And so then you you do do a lot of other things to either try to fix it or then go into your self-medication to to avoid the pain of of your guilt and shame and and all of that and it just keeps that cycle going. That's what's so evil about it is that shame from something from a false belief is what pushes me into self-medicating, doing things I shouldn't be doing. And then when I'm trying to get out of that and I'm admitting it uh, and she's hurting from it, it feels shameful Mm -hmm. and pushes me down. And that's, that's just where the gears get clogged up where it's like, it's hard to move. And that's where I think you just can't do it without somebody else helping. And Something that ties into that is another visual word picture that I heard. I'm not sure it was from you, but you would, it, it might've been. And that's that often when I'm terrible at telling these stories, but it's yeah, the ambulance, should, it's the ambulance story. Yeah. I made, I made that story up. I, mean, that's I, my think, I think Dana did tell it. I, I felt like I couldn't find the words to describe what it felt like to need healing until I thought of this word picture. And it was that Bob had driven our vehicle into a tree and we were both bloodied. So the ambulance comes, they triage us. Of course, his, 
his injuries are life-threatening. Mine aren't so bad, but they're terrible. So the EMTs put him on the gurney, they put him in the ambulance, they drive off, and I'm sitting there alone, bleeding in the car. Mm. And nobody's there to fix me. Who's gonna fix me? Mm. Well, the truth is I have to take ownership of that. I, you know, I wanted Bob to like go get fixed and then come back driving that ambulance and be, <laughs> my, be my healer, right? That yeah. never happened. And I feel like through many years of our marriage, I was waiting for him in that car to show up after he was well to make me well. And that's just not how it works. Mm-hmm. Big bummer. Well, it was a bummer for me too, because I I wanted to help, but I had no idea how to do it. Yeah. Well, one gift that came out of this trauma is that I finally figured out who my healer truly is. Tippy helped me figure it out. Yeah. I think once we learn that Jesus really loves us in spite of our serious sin, it's easier to be honest and to do things that are difficult. Like doing your own healing work when you're wounded and being honest about the story of your life. Telling my story to clients, and I don't tell my sto- my recovery story to everybody, but if, they, if they're suffering with alcohol or it's in their family, I do tell them, and I tell them what Jesus did for me. And in the last, I guess, I don't know how long, um, I spend more time talking about Jesus and giving them scriptures and things like that, because that's where the power is, mm. you know, our trust in him. And what his word says about who we are in him, that's power. Every conversation I had with Tippy, she directed me to Jesus and his word. Like when I suspected Bob was relapsed, she turned me to Proverbs 3, 5 to 6. She said, Dana, we have to pray because we cannot lean on our own understanding, but we can trust in the Lord with all our heart. We can acknowledge him in all our ways, and he's going to make your path straight, Dana. So let's go to him and let's say, Lord, would you bring such conviction to Bob's heart that his life is miserable unless he brings truth and confession, first and foremost to God, but also to you. And that was Tippy's advice for me. So we prayed. For months, we prayed that the Lord would make you miserable. Well, the Lord answered your prayer because <laughs> I was miserable every day. Mm. I saw how it was affecting you. I couldn't talk to you about it. Um and it just was oppressive. I just, it's all I thought about day after day. It's hard to finally make the decision to confess because I knew how much it would hurt you and it would hurt me. But you did. You confessed after 18 months of praying. But I didn't know what to do with that. I, I wasn't appropriately grieving what was happening in our marriage. So Tippy said, stop pretending you're okay. And she gave me the strangest assignment. She said, study the book of Lamentations. Oh, that's that's a real upper. <laughs> yeah, I think that was kind of the point. You see, I learned in those pages that when sin impacts us, we, the people of God, are called to lament, to grieve. But what I'm trying to say is that Tippy taught me to lean into Jesus as my healer. And here's what happened. This is important. As I went to the Word, I started to detach from my husband and this whole problem we were facing. What I mean by that is that my emotions were less in control. I felt more objective. And that made me want to establish boundaries, which was totally new and weird for me. Yeah. And I didn't know that was confusing to you until we talked about it with Tippy 
um, on our Zoom call. Tippy, one of the things that was really hard that you helped me understand is detachment and boundaries. Because when I started to feel, I, I didn't know what to call it. I just said, I feel a distance from Bob, but it's not like I'm walking away from him. I don't know what to call this. And I'm terrified. And you said, that's detachment. It can be a scary thing, but it can also be a very holy thing. Well, it's very important, especially for women in a marriage, because we take things so personally and we don't understand a lot of things about men and whatnot. We have to be able to look at our husbands and love them no matter what, but not take it on. Satan is talking to women all the time. He talked to me until I was 50 years old and I was, I just had presented uh, some, shared some thoughts uh, with some women in, um, at, at Green Tree. And I, the Lord told me I needed to tell them that I was a recovering alcoholic and I was terrified and my mother was coming and I hadn't told her. So I had to go tell her first. And every time I tell that, I'm freer and freer and freer. So loud now, Satan can't say anything to me. He used mm -hmm. to say, oh, you're this and you're that. And I said, oh, shut up. Everybody knows that. <laughs> so, that's, a, that's, a, that's an example of holy detachment. Mm -hmm. I don't listen to that voice. The definition of detachment in the dictionary is the state of being objective or aloof. It's looking at something factually, objectively realizing this is what needs to happen. I'm going to do it and I'm not going to let my emotions dissuade me. So as I began to detach, I gained the capacity to respond to Bob's battle with more reason rather than responding out of my feelings. Remember, your emotions are important messengers, as we discussed previously, but they don't get to be the boss of you. My old pattern was just to emotionally forgive Bob and not do anything that communicated my expectations for different behavior. When I did that, I was contributing to the cycle. Yeah, but it wasn't your fault. Yeah, I know. I know. But I think, well, wives come to me all the time and they say, he did it again. And they're so broken and they're so sad. But a week later they say, oh, we're great. We're better. He's fine. And I know in a month they'll be broken and sad again. And they're going to come crying to me because they weren't detached enough to be objective. I think we have to admit that we women get stuck in the cycle too. And today I'm telling every woman listening, you can take control of your part of it by setting boundaries. Otherwise, the cycle's likely to continue. And men, it's time to step up and break the cycle as well. And that's by encouraging boundaries, asking your wife what you can do to help her feel safe, and then following those boundaries and adding even more that you think will help you be successful. And Dana, when you got objective, when it wasn't all from the emotions, mm. it was a wake-up call to me. Things got serious right away. Mm. And I knew you expected more of me, and you were doing it out of strength. It, it got real serious. It made me want to work harder and stop the cycle. Mm. So let's talk about boundaries. Boundaries are limits we agree to in order to protect the sacredness of our marriage. And it's important that no one is using them as retribution, Okay. We have to agree to them and maybe have the help of a counselor or a mentor or pastor in selecting them. It's important for me to say this. 
Boundaries are biblical. God's word has a handful of them. And during our redemption journey, we discovered a classic sermon that had really a huge impact on our understanding of boundaries. And we want to share that with you today. Our scripture reading tonight is on page eight from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter five, verses 27 through 30. This is audio from one of the best sermons I've ever heard in my life. Pete assigned it to me when I was in Colorado before Dana joined me there. So you can just picture me and my uh, riding around on my pawn shop one-seater bicycle uh, pedaling away and listening to this message over and over. Trust me, it's good, but it's not for the faint of heart. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See what I mean? But I, I beg you, don't tune out. Keep listening. There's incredible freedom for you in the truth you're about to hear. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. So this isn't literal, of course, thank God, or there'd be a whole church full of blind guys without arms and legs too, if it really worked. Well, here's Pastor Tim Keller to unpack it a bit. This is from his podcast, Gospel in Life. Jesus, um, in the Sermon on the Mount, is telling us how he wants us to live in every area of life. Well, love and sex is one of those areas of life. And so he gets to that here. And when you first read it, it makes, it would be natural when you hear this read to have a negative response because it looks like on the surface, Jesus is saying, if you have sexual desire, you're going to hell. <laughs> and it, it would be very natural for somebody to say, aha, see, that's that negative view of sex that everybody says Christians have. But that's a great misunderstanding. And I'm going to show you that the biblical or Christian understanding of sex, while it is very different from that which the culture gives you. Nevertheless, in the grand scheme of things, it's one of the most attractive things about Christianity. Three things we see here. The integrity of sex, the challenge of lust, the future of love. When I listened to this message for the first time, I had no idea how it would transform my mind. It changed the way I viewed how high and holy the boundaries of sex really have to be to maintain the integrity of sex. But Here's something else I want you to hear today. Now, first, integrity, the integrity of sex. Why do I talk about this as integrity? Look, he starts by saying this. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. And then he goes on and says, but I say to you, and he's, he's going to build on that, which is very clear that he's accepting the Old Testament principle, the Old Testament law, thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, what is the Old Testament sex ethic. What's the biblical sex ethic? I can give it to you. We have to understand it because Jesus is building on it. I can give it to you in one word. No sex outside of a covenant. Or, more positively, let's try to be positive tonight, sex only inside a covenant. That is to say, the Bible says, no sex outside of marriage. So somebody's there saying, ah, covenant, that's a kind of archaic word. Could you, you, could you give me a more up-to-date word, a more modern word? And my answer is, no, I can't. Because covenant is not just a word, it's a category of thought. And there isn't any other word I know 
that conveys this category of thought. And what is that category? A covenant is a, re- a covenant creates a relationship. It's a relationship far more loving and intimate than a merely legal relationship, but it's also far more binding and enduring than a merely emotional relationship. A covenant creates a personal relationship which is more intimate and loving because it's legal. It's more loving because it's legal. Let me make my case. You say, how is that? Let me explain. A consumer relationship. In a consumer relationship, you relate to a vendor, and you have a relationship as long as the vendor is giving you a product at a good price. But you're always looking for an upgrade. And so what you say to your vendor is you say, we have a relationship, but you better keep adjusting to me because if you, if you don't meet my needs, I'm out of here because my needs are more important than the relationship. We have a relationship, but my needs are more important. If I can get my needs met somewhere else, that's where I will go. I can relate to that attitude totally. I think every man can. You know, most of us can, in truth, recognize that if someone doesn't meet our needs, we'll go somewhere else. But for me, I was really trapped in that cycle of what he calls consumer sex. And it it didn't satisfy me. I wanted something else. I wanted a bigger thrill. Um, and it was always a dead-end game. And here, Tim Keller was about to explain what I was really longing for. But a covenant relationship is exactly the opposite. A consumer relationship says, you adjust to me or I'm out of here. A covenant relationship says, I will adjust to you because I've made a promise. And the relationship is more important than my needs. My needs are less important than the sustenance of the relationship. Now, if two people get into a relationship, one as a consumer and one as a covenanter, that'll be bad for the covenanter. That covenanter will be exploited. So if you get into a relationship, if you're not both covenanting, it's exploitative. But if both of you get into a relationship and say, we're done with a consumer relationship, we're in a covenant relationship, which is what it means to get married. If you get into a covenant relationship, oh my. The first is you finally have a zone of security, a zone of safety, a place where you can finally be yourself. See, in a consumer relationship, you're always marketing. You're always selling yourself. You've got to perform you got to meet the other person's need or they're out. But in a covenant, in a marriage, in a covenant, you finally have a zone of safety. You can finally get rid of the facades. You can finally let, them know, let her know about your insecurities. You can finally let, uh, be yourself. You finally have a zone of safety, a place where you can actually stop spinning and stop marketing and stop selling and start being yourself. Yeah, I wanted to stop spinning. And if you remember in the last episode, I talked about one of the lies that was driving my sin was campaigning, that I felt like I was always campaigning, comparing, or competing. And I had to get to a place of feeling like who I was wasn't up for a vote. So this sermon really hit home for me. I love the sermon. I want everybody to listen to it. Everybody that I've told about it has absolutely loved it. And I think you will too. Yeah. A lot of people we share it with listen to it multiple times. In fact, my editor, when she saw it in the pages of the book, Happily Even After, texted me and said, you're right, this is one of the best sermons I've ever heard. And she listened to it several times. It's worth buying the book just to get the recommendation to listen to the sermon. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying. Well, I'm glad the book has some worth. Babe. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Why don't you tell them the name of the sermon so they can find it? Well, it's called Love and Lust, and you'll find it on Tim Keller's Gospel and Life podcast. We'll put a link in the show notes.
just to say one more thing about this, this sermon was a critical tool for me to remember how to appreciate the boundaries that were in place around me and how important they were to our marriage bed. It was a major tool in helping me stop the cycle. This podcast is brought to you by Pure Freedom and Moody Publishers. Here's Bob Gresh. Most men struggling with lust and pornography and all the other stuff that escalates into know the cycle. Here's Bob Lapine. He interviewed me and Dana for a Revive Our Hearts broadcast. The question is not, has my husband stumbled in this area? Because almost every husband listening has stumbled at some point. The question is, is he caught in a pattern here? And how can I be an ally in helping him get free from this snare that he has found himself in? And it's also okay to ask your husband to have some boundaries so that he doesn't mm-hmm. slip. It's okay to say, I'd feel really good if you had covenant eyes or another blocker on your computer. I'd feel really great if you're not on your computer at night without me. I'd feel safe safe if you were in a group of men talking about this stuff. I think that's reasonable. For how many men struggle with this, I think it's reasonable for wives to say, pretty gigantic chance you're going to struggle with this or you have Maybe we should put some easy boundaries in. I would feel safe with that. And a husband who is committed to loving his wife needs to be ready to accept those kinds of boundaries as a way to demonstrate his love for her, right? Absolutely. And I have boundaries, very high boundaries still, and always will, that are actually somewhat aggravating to me. But that's a consequence, and that's a a safety for me and for Dana to build trust. But you just said the word meekness a few moments ago, Bob. And that's a really, really, really important word for a woman who's going to enter into this battle for her husband. There's a verse in 1 Peter 3, 1 to 4 that a lot of women aren't really comfortable embracing when their husband's struggling, but it says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands right there. Some of you whose hearts are hurting from your husbands, you want to turn off. I want to encourage you, don't do that. Because this verse, these verses are written for wives whose husbands are not walking in rightness with the Lord. So they matter. And it says, be subject to your own husband so that even if some do not obey the word, your husband might not be obeying the word right now. But then the verse goes on to say, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Mm -hmm. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. It's almost like the Lord is like, I know you're going to want to get your boy-getter outfit on to try to turn your husband's eye when your heart is hurting like this. That's not going to help, girl. That's not what he needs. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle... And the word there is, I'll probably not pronounce this correctly, but the Greek word is praus, and it means meek, a meek and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, here's where I want to really be careful to say that meekness is not being a doormat. It's having a mild and gentle manner 
but you are exercising God's strength under his control. So I don't think there was a time when Bob would have thought I was blindly being accepting of this sin or turning a blind eye. There was strength. You know, it doesn't feel like it, but it is a gift when our wives find that kind of strength. And when Dana found it, she gave me her boundaries and they were, I found them reasonable because she'd already talked to Pete about them. They discussed them. So that was helpful. And because she was humble and and meek, she, it, they weren't a punishment. She was doing it out of love, and I knew that. Um, and so that presentation, the way you presented that baby, helped mm. a lot. Thanks, babe. Um, I know that was a hard thing. Yeah, I hated it. But even harder is that boundaries have to be enforced. And that's mm. what can be really hard for a wife to do. And if you don't adhere to boundaries, it will feed escalation. Yeah, Everything escalates when you're dealing with lust and pornography. So you got to be willing to do whatever it takes to cut off what's feeding that sin and that cycle. And for some couples, that means going to pretty drastic measures. I confessed all this stuff and I actually felt better after the confession, even though my wife was withered on the couch. That's Jonathan Doherty talking to Dr. Julie Slattery on her podcast, Java with Julie. He just explained that his wife, Elaine, had heard lots of mini confessions, four years worth actually, but never one this big or this honest. Jonathan's sexual appetite had escalated far beyond porn. He was using chat rooms to meet women online, visit strip clubs, and even hired prostitutes. As for his wife, Elaine, she had gotten so bad that it was to the point where she was praying every night that she would die in her sleep because it hurt so badly. But the repeated cycle of confession and forgiveness was doing something entirely different for Jonathan. I falsely assumed that because I felt better from confession, that confession was all it was going to take to change my life. Mm -hmm. But less than a week later, I was in bed with another woman. And that's when Elaine did something different. She says, I'm out of here. I don't want to ever see you or speak to you again. Mm -hmm. And that was actually the catalyst that God used to rattle me because, Julie, this will sound crazy, but I never thought she would leave. That's what you call a boundary. And I hope it doesn't have to come to that kind of boundary for you to get rattled enough to stop the cycle. I hope it doesn't take that. Today, the good news is Jonathan is reconciled to his wife. He's walking in sexual integrity. And he also leads a ministry called Be Broken, which helps men walk from sexual brokenness to wholeness. We think you'd like his three-day intensive to kickstart a life of sexual integrity. It's um, recommended by Dr. Julie Slattery. And there's a link in the show notes to his ministry and also that conversation with Dr. Julie. There's one last thing we want to say about boundaries. Unless God is controlling both of your hearts, it can get dicey. So let's get back to where we started today prayer. And I know this is going to make some of you uncomfortable. So be it. Whatever. You need to pray together. Uh-huh. Period. If you want to experience healing, men, you've got to pray with and for your wives. During the time that Dana began implementing these boundaries, I learned something from Bevo, Mike Bivens, that really helped me. And we talked about that in the Zoom call. 
you remember when we were little bitty and if you were if, if somehow if you caught on fire if, if you had fire that's just the most bizarre thing but we were taught this if you were on fire what were you taught to do stop drop and roll bingo all right so here's a different fire if me and my little brown-eyed bride in the what little hair I've got is flaring up, that's the enemy trying to get in between the very thing that represents our marriage with Christ. And so what we learn to do in that moment is to stop, drop, and pray. Mm. And that we're saying in that moment that, and it's quick. And there's times, man, both of us, if she were here, we'd both say, man, I don't want to pray. And, and so to to break through that and, and allow the, the dynamite power within us through the Holy Spirit to go, okay, the enemy has nothing to do with us right now. He is, he has to leave in the name of Jesus. And it's just amazing the energy that it takes out of that moment. And, and you still have to reconcile what got you to that moment. And so in the early going, I would even go back and go, who and what was I defending? I think, Bob, you and I have talked about that one before, you know, and it's amazing going, all right, what was I defending? Was I defend? Was I responding as a little boy? And so the honest answer for me a lot of times is, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and then on her side of the fence would be the same, you know. So you, you just it's a constant learning on how to feel each other's heart, meet each other in the middle. You know, it we call it common ground. There's an old country song, meet in the middle. Y'all probably don't know that song. I know that song. I know that song. He knows all the country songs, especially the old ones. Yes. Uh, I think you're the one that taught me and Dana to not go nuclear, Mm -hmm. to be able to argue without hurting each other. Uh, and it's just the stop, drop, and roll thing. Um, We learned that early, and I think that's really helped us to not say things we don't, we may mean, but it's not the right moment. I mean, it's not like a lot of times in those moments, I think what comes out of us is what we're really feeling deep down inside, but it's not the proper way to, to, to discuss that. Right. So that, thank you for that, because that's really helped us to not create lasting damage because of an argument because oh. the arguments we have now um, we, we do call ourselves a high conflict couple. And so um, would you agree with that? I think that does kind of answer, but it's different now. I, I, it's more healthy. Correct. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because we can and, disagree amen. and not, uh, we can end arguments, uh, maybe not the minute we we start them, but we can ar- end them a lot faster because we haven't said a lot of things that deeply hurt for for a long time. Yeah. Um, and so I think you teaching us that I think has been has been awesome. You we kept you longer than we said we would, but you said so many great things. I wonder yeah. if you pray for us. Absolutely. I'll pray for you. grab your bride's hand there, Bob. Yeah, Father, in the name of Jesus, we just thank you for who you are in our life. Lord, we do thank you for just this total redemption that we have through the cross and man through the empty tomb. That is the full gospel, and it is great news. So, Lord, we're going to 
We're going to put ourselves aside and let you just flow through us in the rest of the day. I pray nothing but blessing and protection over these conversations, uh, Father, and that man that 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 you hear awe and wonder would be displayed in a way that would start buckling knees. Lord, we love you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Wow. I want to talk to the men for just a second here. It's it's time to start taking care of our brides. If you remember Dana's analogy of the ambulance, how she felt like the EMTs came and took me away because I was the one that needed the triage and I was the one that needed all the care and counsel and everything revolved around me. But there she was still bleeding and hurting and your wife probably feels the same way too. It's a pretty good analogy. So today I have a challenge to issue to you. Call a second ambulance. I don't know what that looks like for your marriage, but for mine, it looked like having daily accountability with men uh, rather than just weekly accountability. And it included me agreeing to boundaries that made Dana feel safe, which actually made me feel good. It included going to counseling, um, going to meetings, and things I've been actively involved in weekly. Yeah. And she'll tell you that it included beginning to pray daily with her, mm-hmm. which was simple but not easy. Yeah, I think it's the thing that made me feel the safest. Mm, that's what's interesting. I, I do too. So what does your wife need? Do whatever it takes to tend to her wounds. Call that second ambulance. Well, that's this episode of the Happily Even After limited series podcast with Bob and Dana Gresh. Be sure to check out the show notes at danagresh.com. If you don't already have a copy of Happily Even After, Let God Redeem Your Marriage, get one anywhere you like to buy books. Episodes one through seven of this podcast support key chapters in that book. They contain conversation prompts to explore the seven beliefs every marriage needs to experience God's redemption. Hopefully you read chapter 11 titled Truth Number Three, Boundaries Can Bring Holiness and Health to Your Life. At the end of that chapter are some simple conversation prompts to talk about living within God's fence of holiness and healthy living. It's time to call that second ambulance. And men, I invite you to man up and pray for your wife. Just do it. The Happily Even After podcast is written by Bob and Dana Gresh. Original music and production by Blake Bratton. And thanks to Moody Publishers for underwriting this episode. Here's what's up next time. I was like the maddest I've been in my whole life because I was just like, that is ridiculous, you know? And I just was just like so angry and in disbelief. And then he like put his hands down and his his head down in his hands and just broke down crying after this rant. And um, I saw myself just go over to him and hug him. What do you mean you saw yourself? I was on the complete opposite end of the couch and I was so mad at him and there's no way that that was me doing it. Like it was a total supernatural experience that I've never felt anything like it. I haven't since that day, Um, but I saw myself go over and sit by him and wrap my arms around him and tell him that I forgive you and I love you. And I just, in that moment, I would not have done that. It wasn't me. It was definitely the Holy Spirit in me that did Mm. that what did that do for you Wade um I think it finally broke me 